Hi, good evening. Uh, welcome to the second episode slash class of our ABCs of Socialism series. Uh, we're having one of these each Monday in March. Uh, each session, as people may know, are taking up questions from a different chapter of the ABCs of Socialism, which is a book that was produced by Bhaskar Sankara and the editors of Jacobin and published by Verso Books. Uh, Verso is also the host of this space. Uh, they're putting on the live stream. We thank them so much for, for doing the book with us and for hosting. So the question posed tonight in the title of tonight's discussion is, does human nature make socialism impossible? Well, uh, I'm just going to tell you right at the top of the program, spoiler alert, uh, the answer is no. Human nature does not uh, represent a barrier to socialism. Uh, I just want to cut to the chase because I know people are anxious to get home uh, and beat the snow. Uh, I'm sorry, I hope I didn't ruin that for you. No, okay. Uh, tonight's discussion will actually be uh, taking up the question why human nature doesn't make socialism impossible. And it's an important question and an important discussion, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, an important discussion to have. Uh, there are clearly deep inequalities in this world uh, that I think we can all observe. Uh, no one will argue otherwise. I mean, I can't think of a single instance uh, when anyone argues that there aren't huge, obscene inequalities in, the, in this world. Uh, what we do hear all the time are uh, various explanations for why that inequality exists. Socialists say it's because capitalism is a system of domination, exploitation, and oppression. But in the mainstream discussions, uh, one way these inequalities are justified, and there's many, many ways they're, that, they're, that they're justified, but one way is that the competition and the viciousness that we see under capitalism are built into human beings' DNA. And this gets portrayed in a number of ways. The one way that I think about most frequently is these sort of videos that come out after Black Friday of people rushing into Walmart and wrestling over cheap consumer goods, the only ones they can afford, that are presented in this sort of working class gone wild video where it's like, see, we knew that it was just a matter of time before people exploded again. Um, this is argument over and over in many, many different ways that, that viciousness, competition is, is baked right into, into, into our genetics. So I'm really glad we're having a discussion that will dissect these claims uh, about human nature. And I'm, I'm really thrilled that uh, Adana Rismani will be our speaker tonight. Adana is a sociology PhD at NYU. Uh, he's a friend, uh, and no one that I know uh, frets over the big moral questions in life more than Adana. Uh, I'm sure he'll help us out tonight to figure out why human nature is not a barrier to socialism. So let's welcome Adana Rismani. Thanks, Jason, and thanks to everyone who's helping organize the event. Um, I'd like to begin by setting a scene. You're with family, extended family, and discussion meanders to an observation about you. Someone notes that, hey, on Facebook, it looks like you've been going to protests. It looks like you've been casting aspersions on capitalism, American imperialism, Ezra Klein, You've been using words like neoliberalism and reading Trotsky. It seems like you're a socialist. You, you might even be a commie. Someone at this gathering immediately responds to this revelation with disdain. Maybe a cousin who overdosed on econ classes at college. This cousin turns to address you. Look, socialism? It's all well and good on paper. Sharing, caring, etc. Sounds great. But unfortunately, you're preaching to the wrong species. Humans aren't hippies. They're selfish, and they care only about themselves. 
Hence, war, plunder, exploitation, violence. With the raw materials that are human beings, you'll never build anything other than what we have today. Hands up if you've heard an, uh, uh, an objection like this one before. Of course you have. All, we all have. Here's my wager. When confronted with this objection, I'm guessing that most of you have responded in roughly the following way. Certainly, I have responded in this way before. Something like, look, cuz, the humans you know, they are monsters. <laughs> not, only, not only because you only hang out with douchebags, but also because you only know capitalist men. And I agree, capitalist man, capitalist man sucks. But socialist man, socialist man on the other hand, he would be caring, other regarding, compassionate. And finishing with a flourish, you probably said something like, look, the bottom line is there is no such thing as human nature. Human nature, humans are made, they aren't born. In short, in response to the argument that humans are inherently competitive and selfish, you argue that in fact there are no attributes or drives that inhere in humans. There is no such thing as a human nature. I'm going to refer to this argument today throughout as the blank slate thesis. And my argument to you is going to be that the blank slate thesis is wrong. It's the wrong way to confront the objection, and it's the wrong way to defend the possibility of another type of society. So why is it wrong? The blank slate thesis leads us, leads socialists, into three kinds of insoluble problems, three difficulties that reveal, in fact, that most of us don't even believe that there is no such thing as a human nature, even if we've made the opposite argument to stubborn cousins. There's a moral difficulty, there's an analytical difficulty, and there's a political difficulty. So first, the moral difficulty. The thesis that humans have no inherent human nature makes our moral project incoherent. And by this I mean one very simple thing. When you or I look at the world around us and find that something is amiss, that there's something immoral afoot, we fixate on certain elemental forms of deprivation. People are deprived of the basic things that they need in order to reproduce themselves comfortably. Many people in this world go to sleep hungry. They're worried that they may not survive their next pregnancy, their next illness, their next marriage. They're worried that the oceans may rise to flood their home. They work meaningless jobs for petty tyrants. They can't send their children to decent schools, and on and on and on. We agree that these things are terrible. They ought to be eliminated from our world. You wouldn't be here otherwise. But the premise of your outrage, the reason that you are upset, is only indirectly the fact that you think these things are outrageous. And by that I mean you think these things are outrageous because you correctly believe that the people living in these conditions must themselves be outraged. You believe that the average human being should not be forced to live impoverished, stunted lives because you impute to the average human being certain unshakable interests in being fed when hungry, quenched when thirsty, free when dominated, etc., etc., etc. Consider the glorious socialist invocation. Workers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. That's a universal injunction. And why is it compelling? Because we all know that nobody likes being in chains. The slogan is not, workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains, unless in some cultures people like being in chains, in which case we demand that those people be allowed to keep their chains. 
This belief that these universal interests exist is rooted in a belief that humans universally are everywhere basically the same. In other words, you believe that people are meaningfully animated by their human nature, whatever the influence of culture or history on them. So that's the first point. Our moral projects, our normative project, requires a commitment to some model of what human beings demand everywhere by virtue of their very nature. The second point, so that was the moral point. The second point is an analytical point. If humans were blank slates, it would be very difficult to make much sense of the laws of motion of human societies. It would lead to an analytical impasse. So for those of you who were here last week, remember Vivek Chibber's argument. Socialists fixate on class because that fixation holds unique diagnostic and prognostic insights, he argued. Both of these claims are versions of a more general claim that socialists make about human history, which is referred to as historical materialism. The claim is that given certain information about how the total pie in any given society is produced, about who does the producing, who does the appropriating, who owns, who rents, who works, we can make certain inferences about who has power and who is powerless, about who will do well for themselves and who will do poorly. We can say something intelligent, in other words, about the rhythms of economic life in that society, about the character of political conflict that might emerge, and even, maybe more ambitiously, even about the nature of ideas or ideologies that agents in that society will find compelling. What's relevant for our purposes is that it is impossible, it is impossible to make this argument without being committed to some stable expectations about what humans are like across time and across space. At its essence, historical materialism is a set of claims about how an abstract human is likely to behave when she finds herself with or without certain resources and arrayed against other humans who are similarly or differently positioned. If you take out the anchoring model of what humans are like in the abstract, in other words, if you re reject any and all claims about human nature, the whole edifice comes crashing down. You lose the ability then to make sense of the core questions that anyone who wants to change society has to ask. Why are some people poor? Why are other people rich? Why are some people powerful and other people powerless? And how do we build counterpower? How do we counter the power of the powerful? Human societies become nothing more, if you take out the anchoring model, nothing more than a blooming, buzzing confusion of an infinite number of hierarchies, roles, ideas, beliefs, rituals, etc., etc. So people on the left are very fond, and rightly so, of quoting Thesis 11 from Marx's Theses on Feuerbach. Uh, philosophers have only interpreted the world, the point is to change it. Thesis 10 and 3 quarters is definitely, if you want to change the world, you have to make sense of it first. The blank slate thesis makes that impossible, and that's the second problem. So we've had a moral problem, an analytical problem, and now the third problem, which is a political problem. The third problem is that it that the blank slate thesis leads to ruinous political analysis. It makes it very difficult for socialists to apprehend the tasks ahead of us in a non-socialist world. It leads to bad diagnoses and also bad strategy. So what do I mean by this? Why would our position on human nature bear on our ability to win people to our politics? Let's start with some sobering reminders first. So we live in a society in which our politics are not mainstream. It's not a surprise. Of course, it's wonderful to see lots of people at this event, the enormous growth of socialist groups after Bernie, the support even for something like socialism amongst a younger generation at the polls. And I don't want to gainsay any of that or deny any of that. 
But at the same time, we cannot forget that we're still small, we're still weak, and we're still operating on the margins of this society. When a small, weak, and marginal group looks out from its minoritarian vantage point onto society, there are two options available to it, two ways in which it tends to make sense of its own marginality, of why other people haven't come around. The first way is to believe that people aren't signing up because they've failed to see what we see. They don't get it. On the left, I think an enormous amount of energy goes into these kinds of explanations. People aren't with us because they aren't woke. And why aren't they woke? Well, because they're bigoted, they're stupid, they're ignorant, they're sexist, they're racist, they're nationalists, they're xenophobes, and on and on and on. That's one way to make sense of why people don't get it. And if I convince you of nothing else today, please let me convince you that this is the wrong way. The correct way, the better way to make sense of our marginality is to invert this view, to flip it on its head entirely. We are few, and they are not with us, not because they've failed to understand what we see, but because we fail to understand what they have seen. We fail to put ourselves in their shoes and take a walk through the world as they've experienced it. What do I mean by this? So let's take the enormous orange-haired elephant in the room. How to understand a white worker in West Virginia voting for a billionaire windbag, or how 53% of white women could vote for the same man. I think that good answers to these sorts of political questions are distinguished from bad answers by one simple fact. They take seriously what it means to have lived the life of the person whose actions or beliefs you're trying to explain. A good political answer, in other words, is one which puts you in the shoes of the person you're trying to account for. And what does it mean to put yourself in their shoes? This is the critical point. It means remembering that your Trump voter is a human being animated by the same kinds of interests that animate you. She cares about her livelihood, her dignity, her autonomy, her family, in much the same way that you do. Your explanation and practice, in other words, should pass a simple litmus test. Could it explain why I would have voted Trump had I been born her? If we fail to do this, I worry that we will find the tasks ahead of us impossible. Organizing is not really the task of preaching to the woke, but in large part, the, ta the task of awakening the not yet woke. But if you can't put yourself in their shoes, you will invariably find yourself talking down to them. Rather than meeting them where they are at, you will find yourself livid that they are not yet where you are. And that will lead to a lot of vigorous, condescending, and fundamentally elitist finger-wagging, not to mass socialist politics. So this is the third problem, then, the political problem. The blank slate thesis encourages you to forget that people are always meaningfully animated by certain unshakable concerns. If we're to win people to our side, we have to take these concerns seriously. We have to take their human nature seriously. So let me summarize what I've argued. If you commit to the blank slate thesis, as a socialist, you face three kinds of problems. A moral problem, an analytical problem, and a political problem. So don't do it. Don't let your friends do it, and don't do it yourself. But so far, I haven't made an argument about how to respond to our annoying cousin. Just how not to respond. In fact, I've conceded that our cousin, our family free marketeer, is right on two points. He's right to argue that there is a universal human nature. And he's right to note that this means that people everywhere care about themselves, about their own interests, and the interests maybe of their loved ones. Given these concessions to his argument, what distinguishes us as socialists from him? How should socialists respond? 
How do we defend the idea of a new society different from this one? A society in which people aren't just out to maximize returns to themselves. A society which takes care of the weak, the vulnerable, the unfortunate. To defend this vision against his, we have to make two clarifying arguments. One about this thing that we're calling human nature, and one about how it expresses itself in social life. So to the first point, clarifying human nature. The major mistake made by our family free marketeer is that he paints a flat, simplistic portrait of what human nature entails. So of course he's correct, partly correct. Humans everywhere care about themselves. They care about having enough to eat. They care about being cared for when sick. They care about having a roof over our heads, etc., etc. We also, I think, care deeply about certain intangibles, our autonomy, our dignity, and, and maybe even some unsavory things can be added to that list. What people think of us, uh, our standing in the eyes of our peers, etc., etc. But at the same time, our antagonist's view of human nature is one in which we care only about these things. We care about maximizing returns from the world to ourselves. On this view, and I'm going to call it the bourgeois view for short, the abstract human is basically like a two-year-old on an airplane. Nobody else matters. And if this were true, our project maybe would be doomed. Out of toddlers on an airplane, I, I think you'd probably be able to build the world of an Ayn Rand novel, but you wouldn't be able to build socialism. But the bourgeois view is only partly correct, and this is the critical point. Humans are capable of many things other than simple selfishness. We're capable of caring for others. We're capable of empathy and compassion. We have the capacity to distinguish fairness from unfairness and the capacity to hold ourselves to those standards. And there are plenty of reasonable evolutionary explanations for this, and we can talk about that in the Q&A if you'd like. The bourgeois view basically inflates our selfish drives and ignores these other qualities. Socialists do not have to do the same. So this is the first point to make. Human nature is not infinitely plastic. We can grant our uh, cousin that. But it does contain a variety of drives and capacities, some inner demons and some better angels, to use the terms of another academic. So that's the first point. Here's the second point. Notice what our antagonist's argument entailed. His argument was that whatever the character of the society in which humans find themselves, their underlying selfishness, their underlying competitiveness is going to eat away at social structures until those social structures have been rendered irrelevant or totally transformed. Biology overpowers society. One way to reject this conclusion is just to invert it. This is what it means, I think, to deny the relevance of human nature entirely. To say that there is no real such thing as human nature, it doesn't really matter. This is the blank slate thesis. Humans are not born but made. In our gleaming socialist future, selfishness will be but a distant memory. For the three reasons already discussed, I think this option is not available to socialists. It's a, it's, I can understand it, it's a tempting argument to make. It's an argument I've made in the past, but I think it's wrong. So what is to be done then? Our antagonist thinks human nature matters absolutely. The temptation is to say it doesn't matter at all. But what should we argue? I think we should basically argue that human nature is always relevant, but never decisive. Specifically, the way in which society is organized, what people have to do to reproduce themselves, what they have to do to other people in order to reproduce themselves. And I think that last part is critical. These facts exercise selectional pressures on the set of drives that constitute, constitute our human nature. The socialist wager in a sentence is that a better society would encourage our better tendencies. This is not to argue, and I, I think I should be very clear about this, this is not to argue that the other aspects of our nature can ever be ignored. 
A better society will no doubt have to respect certain limits. It will have to satisfy our needs. It will have to uh, grant us our desires for freedom, for autonomy, our need to be respected. In other words, socialism will most definitely fail if it requires us to be altruists or saints. Because the vast majority of humans are not built to be either of those things. Whatever else socialism might mean, it cannot mean a society in which people are called upon to systematically sacrifice themselves for some ideal, be it the fatherland, the working class, the world revolution, the supreme leader. That road leads straight to Pyongyang. However, and this I think is equally important, a society which caters to everyone's universal needs, which helps everyone flourish, this is a society that I firmly believe would encourage and nurture the good that lies inside our human nature. And here lies the kernel of truth, I think, in what we were tempted to say to our family free marketeer. It is true in some important sense that he knows only capitalist men. Socialist men would be different. He would still care about himself and his needs, but a better society would also encourage him to take seriously the interests and needs of others. How would it do this? So we can only speculate of course, unless you know of a socialist society somewhere that I don't know of. But I can think of two ways, at least. First, a society which meets everyone's needs is a society in which there would be less to quarrel about, less reason for aggression, less reason for violence, less reason for predation. Compare the person you are when you're sharing a box of cookies with your brother or sister to the person you are when you're sharing one cookie. In fact, and this might be controversial and we can revisit it in the Q&A, a good reason to believe this postulate is that it's probably the best explanation of why capitalism, unjust and terrible as it is, is also the least violent and most tolerant, most rights-respecting society in which humans have ever lived. Uh, and I will defend that in the Q&A if you, ha if you haven't walked out in anger by then. <laughs> the second point, so the first point is about absolute levels of well-being. The second point Socialism would also be a much more egalitarian society. People would appear to each other as equals, not as subordinates or superiors. I'm sure many of you have heard of the Stanford Prison Experiment, which illustrated basically that hierarchies can make monsters out of ordinary humans. Well, the absence of these hierarchies should make it easier to bid farewell to the monsters inside us. In short, in a more developed and more egalitarian society, I find it easy to believe that better humans will flourish. Socialists, one. Libertarian cousin, zero. So to summarize, here's what I've argued tonight. You will have been tempted in the past to make the argument that there is no such thing as a human nature. That temptation is understandable. I've been there. But it's wrong for three reasons. It's wrong for a moral reason, for an analytical reason, and for a political reason. Socialists do believe, we must believe, that there is something called human nature. In fact, like I've said, I believe that you believe it, whether or not you believe that you believe it. But we make two arguments that distinguish us from our bourgeois antagonists. First, human nature comprises not just an interest in ourselves, a certain basic self-interest, but also compassion, empathy, capacity for reflection, capacity to be moral, and second, the way in which society is organized can amplify some of these drives and downplay others. And all this means, I think, that another world is definitely possible. Don't let the fools get you down, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Thank you.
Thanks, Adonar. Uh, okay, so I'm convinced, but I do have a few uh, questions. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to have a discussion briefly. It's going to follow the same format as the, as the other sessions. We'll have a brief conversation. Then uh, we'll turn off the cameras and let the people at home uh, prepare for the blizzard, and then we'll open up uh, to Q&A for people here, uh, which we'll explain uh, at, at that point. So I think there's a lot to unpack here. Um, I have a couple of questions that uh, I'd like to dig into a little more. So you argue essentially that people want what will give them the best life, right? So capitalism gives most people a shitty life. Uh, the promise of socialism is that the vast majority of people will live far better than they currently do. So like, explain, that. are you suggesting that all people are secretly socialists? <laughs> um, so there are a couple of things there. So let me just answer one part of that question, and we, we can keep it going. Um, do I think that most people are basically socialists? I think, so I think that one thing that the left often does when we talk about capitalism, and this is maybe another one of uh, my heresies, I think one of, the thing that we, one of the things that we often do is we make our criticism of capitalism kind of inscrutable or in, inaccessible to people who aren't Marxologists. So we like to talk about exploitation as the root of all evil. And, and then if someone asks you what exploitation is, uh, you ask them to read up on the labor theory of value or something like that. Um, I think actually our, our criticism, our normative uh, objections to capitalism can be captured basically by the intuitive conceptions of fairness that people already have in their heads. Uh, it's not that difficult. In fact, basically, you know, if you, if you, if you think of something like a, like a, like a children's book or like a, uh, a kindergarten classroom. Those sorts of arenas in society are basically organized on what I would call socialist principles. I mean, so there's a really nice book by a man named uh, G.A. Cohen, which I think the, the title of the book is Socialism. And, and what he argues basically is that he, he, he walks through a thought experiment in which you're on a camping trip with your friends. You're trying to organize a camping trip with your friends. And he argues the principles basically that you would use to organize a camping trip those are principles that would, uh, that, that would undergird any reasonable socialist society. And it's, it, it's, it, it, what's really remarkable about that is that the kinds of principles that he adverts to in that book are the sorts of principles not just that liberals often uh, cite when they're, when they're talking about fairness or justice, but even people farther to the right than liberals. So, for example, one thing that I like to do with uh, my students is uh, talk about this quote that I found from Paul Ryan of all people. Paul Ryan at some point said that the goal of any good, I'm paraphrasing, the goal of any the justice or fairness or whatever consists basically in making sure that nobody by virtue of things that they have no control over suffers, that people have the right to flourish in a society and nothing that uh, n nothing arbitrary about them, they're, they're, the, where they're born, uh, wh wh what class they're born into, whatever else, that they, those things don't interfere with their ability to flourish. I think you can basically go, if you take that principle, you can basically go 95% of the way to socialism. And so I do agree, basically, that if, you were to, if we were to be able to, if, if we were to speak to the intuitive conceptions of fairness that people have in their heads, then yeah, I think you're right to say that everybody or I'm right to say that everybody is basically a socialist. Huh. Okay. But that's, there are many other questions there, too, obviously, which is 
obviously not everyone is a socialist in the society, so right. what, what gives? Well, yeah, the obvious, <laughs> the, the obvious response, as, as you're talking, I'm thinking, is so if socialism is intuitive to, to so many people, if these ideas are so, so intuitive, then why is the vast majority of the working class already not an organized revolutionary socialist, right? And this is a claim that actually gets, you know, waged across the left, about why people aren't already in struggle and, and whether or not we should just write them off. So how do you explain the people that, as you say, sort of have an instinctive pull towards these ideas but aren't already in motion? Yeah, great questions. I think, so I think that at least there, there are at least two different parts to that. I think the first, the first point is that even if these are intuitions that, even if the intuitions that people basically walk around with in their head are intuitions that demand a radical reordering of society, that's basically the point that I was trying to make. Even if that's the case, there's obviously, there, there's obviously more that's required to translate that into political views or political beliefs. So the first issue, I think, is definitely a basic kind of informational issue. I mean, it, people in this society are not systematically informed and given systematic analyses of this society by its institutions, the institutions that ought to be doing that, the press, the media, whatever else. Right? And part of our job as socialists is to build the institutions that offer that kind of information and that kind of analysis. So, like, you know, you see, for instance, popular support for the abolition. I don't know if this is still true, but it certainly used to be true. Abolition of the inheritance tax. Or you see that people totally overestimate how equal America is or how uh, easy it is for people from the bottom of the income ladder to rise to the top. Those kinds of things are basic informational problems, and they explain partly, I think, the reason that people aren't socialists. The other issue, which I think is probably the more fundamental issue, is that I think one of the dangers on the left is, is that we look out at society, as you're saying, and we see that people aren't in struggle. Society is, you know, things are terrible, people aren't in struggle. Well, they must be duped, or they must be, they must suffer from this thing that the left likes to call false consciousness, right? Um, I think that's total mistake. I think, you know, put yourself in the shoes of somebody who's like an auto worker today, right? Who's making half what an auto worker used to make 20 years ago, who's in a workplace that used to be organized 20 years ago and now has no union, um, who at any moment the boss is telling them that their job could go to Mexico or their job could go overseas. In those kinds of conditions, it's lunacy to expect a person to automatically organize or automatically rebel. The conditions are just not present. And so that explains a lot, I think, of the reason why even if people have not just intuitions but also an inkling that there's something really amiss in America, why they're not able to struggle because we haven't built the institutions that make it possible for them to do so. And isn't there something also about, so, so you talk about how scarcity makes you behave differently. So if you have a box of cookies, you're, you'll behave one way. If you have one cookie, maybe, maybe another, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I compete with my son over the one cookie all the time. So the, the question I have, isn't the act of competing, doesn't that all, isn't it present an additional obstacle? So you mentioned the prisoner's dilemma. The fact that it's not just that we're competing over scarce resources, but the fact that we're competing itself that puts people into a sort of position where they're evaluating the world as an individual in opposition to other, to other people. And isn't this sort of... So when I think about the difference between cap capitalism forces you into competition with everybody, and this is sort of what informs your worldview, and isn't the promise of socialism that, uh, you know, that democracy solves this problem, that actually figuring things out collectively or having the capacity to figure things out collectively changes your sort of orientation towards other people and not thinking that there's, everything is a zero-sum? Yeah, I, it's an interesting point. I think, I, I mean, I would push back a little bit and say that 
Of course, I agree on principle. I think this, this is kind of the point that I was trying to make towards the end, which is that a society that's more egalitarian, in which people don't relate to each other, because it's not just about absolute levels of well-being. It's also, you know, the rich in this society are, there are lots of these uh, psychological, uh, stu- I guess they're called psychological studies, that show that um, people driving uh, fancy cars don't wait at intersections, whereas people who drive less fancy cars do wait at intersections. There, it's not just your absolute level of well-being, but it's also what society asks you to do to reproduce yourself. And people in this society who are, who are rich often find themselves relating to people constantly as inferiors or subordinates. And I think what, one of the things, as you were saying, that a social society would do, I think, is that it would it would reduce those hierarchies in a very significant way. So no doubt, in that sense, it would nurture our better angels. But the, the second part of your question was that... Um, say that again? The, the, the promise of socialism is the... Demo- the oh, the democracy yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. So the democracy point, I think, is, is totally relevant, very important, and it's, it's, uh, there's no question that a society that was more democratic would do some of those things as well. But I think we do have to be careful to say it's, it's not the case that democracy will... Uh, will make obsolete the various sorts of conflicts that societies, by nature of there being a distribution of benefits and burdens that we have to allocate, democracy won't do away with those problems. So, it's, I mean, it's important to be clear-eyed about that fact. But also, yeah, I mean, democracy, I think, and generally egalitarian relations are part of the same solution to the, to, to the problem. Right. So, you know, I mean, obviously so much of this hinges on your understanding of human nature. But I think you're one of the points that humans are nasty and selfish and that is more or less it or if I think that there's no such thing as human nature what does that do to my ability to, to it, like right now how does that change what I'm doing right now I think in my opinion the, the most disastrous consequence of, of that of abandoning this kind of anchoring model of human nature that I was talking about the most disastrous consequence is basically that it will turn you into an inveterate elitist there's no question about that in my mind, simply because this is the point that I was trying to make in that political section, is that you, you, it'll be impossible for you to put yourself in the shoes of somebody else meaningfully unless you are able to sympathize with them, unless you're able to identify what it is that you have in common with them. And that fundamentally is your human nature, stripped of you know, our blue state, college-educated, whatever uh, attributes Fundamentally, what we need to get to is this understanding of, uh, understanding of what we have in common with them. And that is human nature, I think. And, and I, I, I've seen that, in my opinion, in a fair number of the analyses uh, of this election, which is that people have, have gone astray because they've forgotten that very basic fact. Mm-hmm. I mean, I should say, like, so let me just make this point a little bit more forcefully. I mean, so there are lots of analyses uh, of the, the vote, right, the Trump vote, um, which fixate on, like I was saying, racism, sexism, nationalism, misogyny, whatever else. Um, and th- there is, I, I don't want to gainsay the relevance of these things in society, the fact that they exist, there's no question. But to me, these sorts of things are uh, answering the question, why did people vote in this way, with the answer, they were racist, they were sexist, whatever else, they were nationalists. That just reposes the question in a different way. The question then becomes, well, why are they racists? Why are they sexists? Why are they nationalists? And, and to answer that, I think you really need to go back to uh, what we were discussing earlier, which is you need to be able to put yourself in, the, in their shoes. And to do that, there's no way out of a commitment to something called human nature. So you, you, you've come back to this a couple of 
a couple of times about putting people, putting your place in, in people's shoes, which sort of implies to me not sort of this model of having you know one great orator say something that inspires everybody to go out and be this sort of blunt instrument of, of class rule, right? Or have a small coterie of people. It's about partnering actually uh, with, with working people and amongst working people to to make huge change happen. The, what we talked about last week when we were talking about why socialists focus on workers. You know, Vivek was talking about at some of the heights of, uh, of struggle, this, this, the struggles that were necessary to win even modest reforms that we now take for granted or have lost, right? And so when we, and it, you know, it's inspiring to read about. It's also, you know, tremendously intimidating when you think about the scale of the struggles that were required. And then when we think about overturning capitalism itself, right, the, the immensity of struggles that we necessary is just, is, is, is even more intense. So, so. You're, and you're talking not as about like wielding the working class as some sort of blunt instrument, but partnering together and trying to figure out collectively um, how to how to how to organize. Because f for socialists, mass struggle is a is a key component, and I think this relates sort of to to to, to what. Marx would argue about people's, it's not just people's ideas that change over time. Like when we talk about getting from where we are to a socialist society, we're talking about a massive sea change in, in ideas, but racist, sexism have to go, but also about people's ability to, to run their own lives collectively and, and in their own interest, right? But it's not just ideas, it's the actual behavior that changes. We go from uh, you know, an individualized, competitive sort of uh, way that we cut through the world into a more collaborative, we're maybe more confident about what we can demand because we're demanding it. Um, you know, w with the, the the strength of our coworkers or of people in our in our other workers in our city, you know, Marx actually writes that this is necessary. That you have to go through these struggles to sort of eliminate the racism and the sexism. It's very difficult to hold these I the ideas about the inferiority of people when you're struggling next to them and your fate sort of is intertwined. So I'm ho wondering if you can talk about these sorts of transformations and, and the role of the left in, in in all of this. I think so. The point the point that I was making uh, in in the talk was that at the very end was basically that I think uh, the, the structure of society, the way in which society is organized, that, that would exercise what I was calling selectional pressures to sort of channel what's best in us and downplay what's, what's worse. But I think you make an additional point, which is a really good point, which is that short of getting there, before we're there, another way in which that happens in our society is when people stand up and struggle and demand things for themselves because often that requires relating to other people, as you were saying, in a movement. And that requires all kinds of solidarity and, and, and collaboration and cooperation. So there's no, there's no question that the left is often a school for those sorts of things. I think that's part of what you were arguing. Um, so in other words, the left has an effect on its participants that's positive in this dimension. I think the other thing that you didn't mention, but which is also really important, is that movements don't just have an effect on people who participate in them, but movements also have a really important effect on bystanders, on people who are not in the movement, but who see people standing up and demanding their rights. And, and, and the, 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 what happens is that people outside the movement end up seeing those people as the humans that they're demanding uh, uh, recognition as. I mean, so like, so for instance, the thing that I'm thinking of is the civil rights movement in this country, right? What, what uh, better example of a movement civilizing a society than the civil rights movement? The civil rights movement was people who were dehumanized, subordinated, standing up to take their rights, and it had, a, had an enormous impact on the culture of this society, on the moral uh, intuitions of people outside of this, who didn't participate in the civil rights movement, but who saw it and were influenced by it. So yeah, so it's as... Uh, not just on participants, but also on bystanders and, and, and outside that the left has an impact. 
Well, I, I think that's incredibly exciting to, to think about, and there's been a ton, uh, you know, that, that I think people will be able to chew on. I, I, I thank you very much for giving the talk. Uh, if we could thank Adana, and then we'll let everybody at home uh, go home. <laughs>